of Acts, verse by verse. And we are focusing on Stephen's speech. Well, why was Stephen making a speech? He was accused of coming down on Moses and the law and coming down on the temple. And accusations like that carried the death penalty and people were gathering rocks to throw at him and stone him. So he had a chance to speak up for himself. Do you have anything to say for yourself? And he gave one of the greatest speeches in all Bible time. And we're going to talk about a part of that speech today. But first I want to talk about inheritance battles. There is nothing uglier than an inheritance battle. Uh, how many of you have been, at least in your extended family, maybe observed one of those where people get testy over something? My grandmother and my aunt Olive went to celebrity death match over their father's violin. Uh, he made a violin. He made it himself. He was very crafty, made his own violin and played it for years. And they fought over that violin till both of them were dead. Uh, it was a very serious thing. And it came between them. And it was really sad to see that happen. We have an inheritance battle here in the book of Acts. I'd like you to turn to Act 6. We're going to go back to Act 6. We're on Act 7 for Stephen's speech. We're going to go back to Act 6, verses 13 through 14. We have the Sanhedrin on one side, the, the Jewish authorities, the people in charge politically and spiritually, and then you have Stephen on the other side. And Stephen was basically a busboy for the church who also was filled with the Spirit, who also had wisdom, who also was well thought of by everyone, the Bible says. And he started operating in deeds of power. And somewhere along the way, he got accused of being against Moses and against the temple. And here's the accusation. This is Acts 6, 13 through 14. And this is the Sanhedrin accusing Stephen. The lying witnesses said, This man is always speaking against the holy temple and against the law of Moses. We have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy the temple and change the customs Moses handed down to us. So there's the, the ac accusations. Stephen, you're coming down on Moses and you're coming down on the temple, both of which were a really big deal because people patterned their lives back then around the teaching of Moses and their worship focused on the temple in Jerusalem. So accusing him of coming down on that means you're coming down at the heart of what we're about as people at our identity. So Stephen's response, and this is called an apology, not in the sense of saying I'm sorry, but in the sense of saying um, I want to respond to this. Have you heard of the term apologetics? Some of you are big into apologetics, and I know, Phil, you like apologetics, and Robert, some of the rest of you. Apologetics is making a case for the Christian faith. So he's making a case. Apologetics means to speak back and to make a case for yourself. So he's going to respond to the charges. Which two charges? Coming down on the law of Moses and the temple. So he has a chance. Do you have anything to say for yourself? He stands up. First, he talks about Abraham. Then he talks about Joseph. Tamara taught on that last week. Today, we're going to talk about Moses. He talks about Moses. Since that's what he's accused of, he has to say whether or not he's coming down on Moses. And then next week, we're going to talk about the temple. 
So those are the four parts of his apology, his apologetics, because this is an inheritance battle. What do I mean by that? You have the, Sanhe- the Sanhedrin saying that they are the rightful heirs of the biblical tradition. They're the ones who get to decide what is correct and what is incorrect about the tradition. Stephen, on the other hand, is saying, no, I am the rightful heir, and our movement, the Christian movement, is the rightful heir to this movement, to the whole thing. I am the rightful heir to God's work in the world, is what Stephen is saying. And he's outnumbered. And he's coming up against the authorities, people with the authority to inflict the death penalty. So this is serious stuff. This is playing for all the marbles. This is playing for keeps. And he's making his speech saying, folks, I get it. This is an inheritance battle. It's not believers versus unbelievers. It's two different kinds of believers who thinks there's issues like that in the world today, different kinds of believers. And are we the rightful heirs or are we not? Are we on the right track? Are we doing what Jesus set the church up to do? Are we doing what God intended through speaking through the prophets in the Old Testament? Are we on the right bus? Or are we diverging from what's going on? So this is what kind of battle? This is an inheritance battle. Who is the rightful heir to God's work in the world? Stephen says it's Jesus and our new church And the Sanhedrin says, no, it's the way we've been doing things here in Israel all this time. So the stakes are high or low? Very high. The stakes are very high, and inheritance battles can get testy, and this one got very testy. I'm glad that my Aunt Olive and my grandmother didn't have access to big rocks, or they probably would have gone after each other in a big way. They loved each other, but over inheritance, boy, it was was something. Luke's audience... You might say, well, why am I bringing Luke into this? Who wrote the book of Acts? Luke. So Luke is writing this down, but his audience is house churches all over the Roman Empire. And those house churches are challenged constantly with, are you the rightful heirs to God's tradition or not? Because the Jewish faith was about 10% of the Roman Empire at the time. So there were Jews everywhere. And there were people who said, no, you guys don't get it right. You guys are not the rightful heirs to God's tradition. So in every house church, there was also a synagogue in town. And they were trying to justify themselves with the synagogue. So Luke's audience is churches like this one. In fact, the well would be a megachurch back then. Uh, Pretty much churches were about as many people as could fit in your living room. That's how big churches were for about 300 years. The first church building was built in the 300s. Before that, people met in homes. And so Luke's audience is all these house churches all over the place who are being challenged by what? The local local synagogues. Let's get that straight, okay? Luke's audience, when he's writing the book of Acts, are house churches who are being challenged legitimacy-wise by the local synagogues. So Stephen's speech is to defend himself, but Luke uses that speech to defend the local churches. Do you understand what I'm saying? And this is applicable today because our Methodist friends right across the patio are fighting over who is the rightful heir to the Methodist tradition because the Methodist tradition is splitting. It's a mess, and it's getting really ugly. And in any inheritance battle, tempers start to 
flair. They, want, they started out saying, let's have an amicable divorce within the movement. And it's gotten less amicable and less amicable, and it's getting downright nasty. And our little host congregation is caught right in the middle of this, and they're having to make a case just like Stephen, saying we're the rightful heirs to the Methodist tradition, and we get to keep our property, and they can't take it from us. So this stuff is still going on. This stuff is still very current today. They're going to meet next week after church. And they're going to have to stand up against the authorities and say, this is why we think we're the rightful heirs to this property. Not you guys. We built it. We paid for it. We maintain it. We're responsible for it. So it's ours, not yours. And you guys are diverging from biblical teaching, and we want to stick with it. So we're the rightful heirs. It's the same stuff. Every generation we work with this. And I need to tell you, we've said this since the beginning of the well from 2006. And it's so good to see Dave and Kathy back here. They've been here since the very beginning. They're back from Idaho. From the very beginning, we've said, as best as we can, we want to be the kind of church that Jesus started, that he intended from the first place. And do we do that perfectly? No, but are we trying to? Yes. I would love it if the apostles walked in here and said, yeah, this is what we had in mind. And if they don't say that, then we're not operating in the same movement. We want to be a church like the one Jesus started, as best we possibly can, because we want to remain faithful heirs to the tradition of the Bible, which is why we spend so much time in the Bible. So today we have Stephen talking about Moses. Moses is a massive character in the Bible. Moses is the main rabbi, the main teacher of the Jewish movement. Moses was a very, very big deal. And... Stephen spends half of his speech talking about Moses. And basically his message is, I'm more faithful to Moses than you are. You guys would have been on the wrong side of Moses the whole time. And there were a lot of people on the wrong side of Moses, and you would have been one of them. And I, am, I actually get Moses better than you do. And he, he basically makes a case for that all through the talk. But our ancestors, this is Acts 7, 39, if you want to turn to that, Acts 7, 39. This is, this is Stephen's speech. But our ancestors refused to listen to Moses. They rejected him and wanted to return to Egypt. Repeat after me. They wanted to return to Egypt. Keep that in your mind. Moses stands for freedom. Egypt stands for slavery. Let's say that again. Moses stands for? Egypt stands for? Slavery. Okay, so Moses was the one who led Israel out of slavery into freedom, into the promised land. Now, what Stephen is saying is, you're, you, the Sanhedrin, are like the people that wanted to go back to Egypt. And he's going to make a case for that, and I'm going to show you how he does it. They told Aaron the Israelites back in Moses' time, make us some gods so we can lead us, for we don't know what has become of this Moses who brought us out of Egypt. Aaron dressed up just like the people in the Sanhedrin. He was the high priest. And so he's identifying the Sanhedrin with the wrong side of, the wrong side of things. So they made an idol shaped like a calf, a golden calf, and they sacrificed to it, and they celebrated over this thing they had made. Basically, Stephen said, if you guys were back in Moses' day, you would have been on Aaron's side. 
because you guys have it wrong, I have it right, and the church has it right, and Jesus had it right. And by the way, you killed Jesus. This is the group that voted him out of, you know, voted him off the island, basically. So we have two forces at work here, the Holy Spirit and the spirit of political control. I need to say something, and this is not a political statement. My political statement is that politics isn't going to fix this country. Getting your side to control the other side is not going to fix things. Getting their side to control our side is not going to fix things. Control doesn't work. Control is an illusion. I'm not saying don't vote. I'm not saying don't get out there and do things. I'm not saying don't run for office. All I'm saying is it's not going to change this country for us to get 51% of the vote and force other people to do what we think is right because that's just control. Hearts have to be changed. Spirits have to be transformed. People have to meet. People need the Lord is what needs to happen. Without people getting in touch with their maker, we're not going to transform this country. I don't care what the Supreme Court does. I don't care what the Senate does. I don't care what the House does. I don't care what the President does. And yes, it's important what they do, but it's not going to change the country. It's something we need to do in our families and in our churches. And we need to lead people to a living faith with a living God. And without that, it's not going to work. It's the Holy Spirit or control people. And this is Stephen's on the side of the Holy Spirit. The Sanhedrin's on the side of control and force. We're gonna, we're, if you don't agree with us, we're going to get a pile of rocks and we're going to get rid of people who disagree with us. I don't know about you guys, but I occasionally hear the sound in our country of people piling up rocks. And it's not going to fix anything. It's not going to fix anything. So who's on the side of the Holy Spirit? You've got Moses. You've got Stephen. Who's on the side of control? Pharaoh, Egypt, the Sanhedrin. Control is an illusion. You could have one cop for each person and people still get away with stuff. We can't control our way to a better future. We really can't. We can't force our way to a better future. We have to create better people. We have to become better people who take responsibility to do things because they're right, not just because we won't get caught. Oh, I, I got to slow down here. Anyways. Moses was also on the side of uncertainty. Moses was, as it says in Numbers 12, 3, now Moses was very humble, more humble than any other person on earth. I wish everyone, myself included, had more intellectual humility. Everybody's got an answer for everything. Oh, it's this, it's that. I've never seen so many opinionated people in my life as the last election where people were so sure that they knew everything. You can't be open to the Holy Spirit. You can't be open to the Holy Spirit without having some humbleness, knowing God's in charge. Moses was there in front of the burning bush. Do you think he ever figured out the burning bush? Do you think he ever taught on how exactly that happened? Massive mystery. Massive mystery. He was in the face of a mysterious, powerful God who could do whatever he wants. Even Jesus said about the Holy Spirit, you can't control where the Holy Spirit goes. He blows where he, like the wind, blows where it wants to blow. Goes where it wants to go. If we want to believe in a living God, we have to give up the desire to control everybody. Because that's just, oh, I want my Pharaoh rather than your Pharaoh. Let's vote in the right Pharaoh, then everything's going to be great. No, 
Moses says, let's get out of Egypt. Let's go do something different. Let's be free people. Let's be voluntary people. This is why volunteerism is so important. We do things because we want to, not just because we won't get paid or just because, Tamara, you've said for years now, volunteers are 40% happier than people who aren't because you take responsibility for things and make stuff happen. It's not about just getting paid or not getting caught because Moses, look at these two pictures. You have Egyptian gods, which all had images. Images that are very particular and very exact. You can tell them apart because they had different, different features and they did different things. And Moses says, I'm going to follow the God that I do not understand in the burning bush. And I'm going to do what he tells me to do. And do not, do, not, do not you dare make an image of it because you cannot contain him in a definition. He is beyond any image. Even his name, Yahweh, is the one who exists. We'll leave it at that. And he's in charge. He made the universe and he gets to do what he wants to and we better get into a relationship with him and he organized the whole community around a tent where they would go to meet with God and ask him where to go. Where did they put the tent? Wherever the column of flame and, and, and smoke went. They didn't, have a, they didn't have an itinerary. Well, on Thursday, we're going to be in Midian. They didn't think that way. They went wherever this mysterious God would lead them. And if you've got a living relationship with God, you do not know where you're going next year. And Jesus said, don't say, don't say tomorrow we'll do this, tomorrow we'll do that. Say, good Lord willing, we will do those things because you don't know. God is not our errand boy. God is our director. And he decides where we're going to go. And he is dynamic. And he is greatly potent in his ability to do different things and we will not understand what he's doing if the closer you get to the Lord the less you will understand him you're never going to figure God out you're never going to master God God by definition is the one who cannot be mastered and this is what I love this is what I love about spirit filled churches they get the fact that God's in charge and we do our best to listen to God because we don't fully understand the Bible and we don't fully understand where he's leading each of us. Kathy was just saying, and I'll put it in a little bit nicer language this morning. She says, my new, say, my new saying is this, uh, uh, for such a time as this, and it stinks. Um, there's, it's, it's, God brings us for such a time as this and prepares us for things and brings us through awful stuff to make us into the people we are. And if you think you know where God's bringing us next year, you're not paying attention to God. I'm not saying don't make plans. Joseph made plans in the Bible to store up provision for later, for, for times. It, not don't plan, but plan and hold it loosely. Hold your plans loosely because God can change them at any moment. We have to be able to listen to God. On the left here, we've got a picture of the burning bush. Look at the difference between God and a burning bush in a miraculous appearance and God as a wooden image. 
This is the difference Moses was trying to show. And this is the same difference that Stephen was trying to show the Sanhedrin. It's not about a bunch of, a bunch of wooden rules that we follow, because guess what? If you follow a bunch of rules and you follow a certain theology, you don't need God, even if it's a Christian theology, because it's just a system. God is not impressed with our theology. God is not just sitting up there thinking, oh, I hope the Reformed people get it right, and I hope the Lutherans don't, and I hope that, you know, woo, woo, Methodists got it there. I hope everybody becomes a Methodist. No. God is way bigger than all of that. God is not contained in a theology. God is not contained in a set of rules. And by the way, if you don't get the heart of those rules and you keep the letter of them, you're missing the whole point. And if you're not loving your neighbor when you're doing it, you're really missing the whole point. So this is challenging stuff, and this is why rocks fly, and they will continue to fly, and the rocks are going to fly next Sunday afternoon over there. And guess who's going to have all the rocks? Not our local church. Not our local Methodist church. It's going to be the people who are in charge with the power and the money to hire big lawyers and the whole thing. And they're going to stand up like Stephen and say, we are the rightful heirs of this property and this ministry. Same stuff. And people, this is the life we go through. This is the stuff we go through. Basically, Stephen's saying to the Sanhedrin, you have become the Egyptians. You're not on Moses' side. You say, I'm coming down on Moses. You don't even get Moses. You would have done the same thing that uh, the Israelites did in creating a golden calf and wanting to go back to Egypt because that's exactly what you're doing. You're creating a system that doesn't need a living God. This is why the older I get, the more I rely on the direct guidance of the Holy Spirit, especially among my brothers and sisters here in the church together. Not just me, because I can get it wrong. But if we do this together, we can, we can come up with what God is doing. And we can help pray each other through our issues and the stuff that God protects us from, guards us from, and sometimes the enemy drags us through. Here's where Stephen gets it right and the Sanhedrin gets it wrong. Here's where Moses gets it right and the Egyptians get it wrong. The word Torah. This is the word that the Sanhedrin used. They said, you're coming down on Moses and his Torah. The Torah is the first five books of the Bible. And they're called the books of Moses. If you live in Germany, those books aren't called Genesis, Exodus, Mo Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They're called 1st Moses, 2nd Moses, 3rd Moses, 4th Moses, and 5th Moses. That's what the books are called in Germany, because these are the books of Moses. And they're called the Torah. Torah is a Hebrew word which comes from archery. It's archery practice. The Torah, getting into the Bible on a regular basis, like Tamara puts these booklets together for us, helps us become better at archery. The word sin is literally missing the target. We get better at archery. Do we ever hit bullseyes all the time? No, we don't. Because archery, the reason it's a sport, is it's beyond, it's beyond our ability physiologically to hit the target every time. The best archer in the world can't do that. Just like golf. Dave uh, McDougall here is a really good golfer. But he will tell you, there's a perfection in golf which you approach but you never quite get to. You're always going to miss putts. You're always going to shank a few. 
no matter what. Golf was designed to frustrate people because <laughs> you will never, ever achieve perfection in golf. It's, great games are designed beyond your ability, like bowling. You cannot throw 300s every time. Or what's the best score? You can't throw 300s every time because it's beyond human precision. So is life. And the Torah was intended to be archery practice to get us better at doing this. And unfortunately, the Torah got turned into a rule book rather than archery practice. And you don't even need to practice archery if you've got the rule book. Do you understand what I'm saying? They started calling it the law, which it was never intended to be. It was tended to be practice, spiritual practice in life. Paul gets it. He says in, in uh, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is useful for growing in righteousness. And the Torah is useful in getting us to live better lives, hitting the target more often, using ancient wisdom to do it. That's what we do here. We get into the Bible and we practice our lives. And we hope to get better at archery, but none of us is going to fully get there. We're still going to miss the target and when nobody here gets bullseyes all the time. Linda Hines occasionally gets pretty close, but just, just kidding, Linda. Just, I, I didn't want to throw you under the bus there. We are the products of Western civilization. Western civilization is built on two pillars. And our country is, everything's at stake right now because the pillars are being chipped at, both of them. One pillar is the belief that there is absolute truth out there and that we go after it together. That's called science. We need that. That's what lights up the Christmas tree. That's what makes your car run. That's what sends probes around the moon. That's what brings electricity into your house. There are people in universities and elsewhere who are saying there's no such thing as objective truth. That truth is, people's truth is just ways of controlling other people. And it's being taught to most of our students in most of our colleges. It's called postmodernism. And it's being taught in such a way that, uh, no, there's no such thing as objective truth. There isn't even any such thing as objective math to some people anymore. We have to change math around different people's different view of it. Once we give up on the search for objective truth or even believing that it's there, even if we never get there, it's important to believe that there's such a thing as objective truth. Otherwise, civilization starts to unravel. This is really key. The other one is, the other pillar, is that, just like Moses said, there's a transcendent God. We may not agree on everything about this God, but there is a transcendent creator we're endowed by this creator with inalienable rights. And presidents have talked about providence, about the Almighty, not pushing any one church, but saying that we have to agree that there is a higher power behind all this. There's a higher truth and a higher power. All of Western civilization is built on the belief, these twin powers, that there's a higher truth and that there's a higher power. We are letting our country be run by people who don't agree with either one. That's really scary. And we, like Moses and Stephen, need to continue to stand up for 
a living truth, even if we don't achieve it. You got to believe it's there. So, we have a fight here between a living God and a legalistic system. I think you get where I'm going with this. So what are some practicalities? What do we do about this? In your life, expect pressure from Egypt. Expect pressure from the Sanhedrin or their equivalent nowadays. Don't be surprised if you run into it. Moses ran into it. Stephen ran into it. Jesus ran into it. All the prophets ran into it. I've been translating the prophets for the Passion Translation, and they all ran into it. Basically, a prophet tells the truth to power. That's what they did. And it didn't go well for them. Telling the truth has consequences. And the next, the next dot up there is truth is always more important than the consequences we face. If you don't tell the truth, if I don't tell the truth because of consequences, it won't go well for us spiritually. It will dent and bend our souls. Do we always understand the truth? No, truth is something we don't fully grasp. But we do the best we can to tell the truth as best we know it. And when people tell us we can't say certain things because that's not correct or that's not politically acceptable and we know it's true, we are obligated to tell the truth in those situations. We have to tell the truth in those situations because the damage to our souls, if we don't, is... Once you bend it, you can't mend it. It's bad. Don't bow or reward coercion. When you're feeling coerced, when you're feeling forced, when you're feeling pushed to do something you know is wrong by people in charge, don't bow to it. That's not easy to do in your workplace. That's not easy to do at your school. That's not easy to do in the marketplace. That's not easy to do in the public sphere. But we don't have a private God. We have a God who created the whole creation. Everything. Jesus did all his ministry outdoors in public. He didn't start a retreat center where people went away and got holy. He was right there. Paul said, I gotta go to Rome. Jesus said, I gotta go to Jerusalem. They didn't say, come out in the wilderness and we'll, you know, we'll become holier than them and we'll keep them out. He didn't create bunkers. He created a mission. Don't let your faith go from Torah to law. Don't become a legalistic Christian. Don't let your archery practice turn into rules. When it comes to rules, obey, obey helpful rules. Christians are obligated to break oppressive ones. Obligated. And this might cause consequences in the generations to come. But we are obligated to break unjust rules. All rules are not from God. Apartheid was legal. Slavery in the South was legal. Abortion in all states up till recently was legal. That doesn't make it right. We are obligated to break rules that are not of a living God. Spirit building and burning bush time. Spend some time at the burning bush wherever you find that. 
get filled and refilled with the Holy Spirit. Connect with God as a mystery, not just as an answer book. Some of you do that in nature. Some of you do it in music. Some of you do it in deep study of the word. Some of you do it lots of different ways, but find some, do some, do some burning bush time to listen to God when he asks you to do things. And you might want to give up trying to understand him. That's never going to happen. But you can get closer to him. You can get closer. So those are some practicalities. I'm going to invite the worship team back up. Spend some time with the burning bush. The God who wants to guide you through this day into the next day. Don't settle for an image of God. Christianity can become just as idolatrous as any faith system. We can set up a whole system around things that has no room for a living God. I've said this many, many times, but in the history of the world, there's never been a revival at a seminary, a graduate seminary. And that's the reason for that is it's all about creating systems. One of the reasons we got kicked out of a denomination here at this church is we, we were not paying attention to the system well enough. That gets you in trouble. And we have to be willing to accept that trouble. I invite you to stand. Now let's pray. Lord, we strive to be a a spirit-filled, spirit-led church. And we want to treat the Bible as a living book, Lord. We We want to feel the breath of Stephen as we read his speech. We want to see the Bible as being living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, not just a book of rules and structures and theologies. Lord, help us each to identify that living verse that lights up our souls so we all can have that key life verse. Help us each to find, if we don't know where it already is, our burning bush. For me, it's often the third song of the praise set, Lord. It takes me a while to come out of my head. And very often during that that third song, I sense your presence. For many of us, it's, it's out in your creation. For many of us, it's when there's Christian fellowship and love. For many of us, it's when we get out and put, someone's, put our hand on someone's shoulder and risk praying for a miracle, and we feel your power flowing through us. Lord, wake us up. Awaken us out of the sleep of the Sanhedrin, the sleep of the sleep of Egypt. Where the slaves mumbled through their tasks, lived under coercion. 
And Lord, Moses' path was not a straight one, and ours won't be either. Lord, I pray it never happens, but it could be that rocks could come flying our way. I pray for our Methodist brothers and sisters here, Lord, uh, at Surf City Church. Because the authorities in that denomination are piling rocks up. Protect them, Lord. Sometimes it appears that you don't protect us, Lord. Uh, Stephen went down. Pummeled with rocks. But nevertheless, Lord, the victory is ours in your it, our, victory is ours in your son. Whether we live, whether we die, whether we see the promises come true, Lord. Give us the courage to speak the truth when it's hard. And give us the humbleness to know that we don't know the full truth. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
differently today than it, it has in the past. And I realized that not only I, but I, I could tell that there are people in this room that need their souls awakened. awakened. Um, there's a lot of grief in this room. And grief doesn't have to be coming from we've lost someone, like so many of us have um, this year. Um, it could be a loss of a relationship. It could be a loss of health. It could be a loss of um, vocation. Um, there's a lot of different things we can grieve. And we need to realize it's okay to grieve. And it's okay to ask the Lord to awaken our souls. And it's okay to admit, I'm not okay. My soul needs to be awakened. And so let's just open up your arms. Let's just receive the gift of God's spirit, his love, and his grace. Father God, we come to you grieving a broken people. There's so many of us in this room, Lord, that just, such a time as this stinks. <laughs> so Lord, I ask now that you fill each one of us up with your Holy Spirit, Lord. Lord, help us to receive that, because I can tell some of resistance. So Lord, just open us up to you. Open us up to your Holy Spirit. Open us up to your love. Open us up to your grace. Open us up to your healing and your mercy. Lord, open us up and awaken our souls, Lord. Awaken our souls to you. Open our souls and awaken our souls to all that you have for us. For that peace and that calm, for that comfort, for that joy and that love, for that mercy and grace for forgiveness. Awaken our soul, Lord, so that we can come closer to you, that we can make the Torah the spiritual part of our being rather than the legalistic part of this world. Lord, come. Lord, come. Thank you, Lord. Thank you,
great week, everybody. We're back here again next week to look at what Stephen has to say about the temple. And where the place where matters, how it matters, how we can worship anywhere in spirit and in truth. So don't miss that. We'll see you next week. Have a great week. And everybody, see if you can find some time at the burning bush, and as Tam was saying, through the grievings and hurts and uncertainties, we can bring those to the living God, too, to that place. There. God will lead us day by day. Have a great week. We'll see you next week. Oh, okay. Oh, okay.